Uh, my name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here at Sunnybrook, and it's my privilege to be with you here today. Uh, you might not know this by looking at me when I go to the pool or the beach, but I actually do care about what people think about me. Um, it's true. Uh, I am one of those who struggle with pleasing people, either with my words, with my actions. I want people to like me at some level, and that's probably not untrue for many of us. I know that's probably true because when you look at a picture, what's the first thing you look at? Yourself. Exactly right. The first thing we look at when we look at a picture, if we are in it, is ourself. And we really don't look at much else. We look at that picture, we decide whether we like that picture of ourselves, and we then decide whether others are going to be allowed to see that picture. I know that it's true also because teenagers. I've had the wonderful privilege of working with teenagers and driving in a van with them for many, many hours over the last couple of months. Uh, and one of the conversations I heard at some point during this summer uh, was about none other than social media. Surprise, surprise. And somebody had just posted their most recent selfie and they were checking it every couple of minutes to see just how many likes they got. And if there wasn't enough likes, what would you do? You delete it. You delete the picture if it doesn't get enough likes because oh, we're concerned with what people think of us. We want to have a good image portrayed for people. Uh, and it's not just me, it's not just teens, but it's also the ladies. Okay, I know this is true for ladies too because every morning you wake up, look in the mirror and you decide, I'm going to put on makeup today because if I don't, number one, all the men that I talk to will be scared and number two, all the women will talk bad about me behind my back. Okay, I know that's true. See, she's like, oh, that's true. It is. Uh, the reason I know it's true for men is because this is what we do. Okay, the first thing we do is we look at each other, we size each other up and decide who would win in a UFC cage match. Okay, once we've decided that, we either talk about weather, sports, or our job. Okay, if we're talking about the weather, it's because we really don't want to be friends. We just have to talk because our spouses are probably talking. If we're talking about sports, well, it depends what sport you talk about, whether or not we think good or not about you. If you're talking about football, baseball, we can go somewhere. If you're talking about soccer, we know you're a little bit less of a man. Um, <clears throat> Scott Irwin just walked out of the building. Um, Thirdly, luckily Zane's not here to throw things at me. He would kill me. Um, thirdly, um, you know, we talk about what we do because we measure our worth based off of our job a lot of time. We all do this, right? Even my son does this. Kids do this. Daddy, watch this. Watch this. He wants me to, to see him. He wants me to have a positive view, a positive image of him. And right now I love kind of because I'm a bad human mostly. I love using that to make other people laugh. So we go to the pool a lot, and he loves swimming, and I'll say, Canyon, Canyon, you know what you should do? You should do a belly flop so everyone can see it. And he just runs, and he, oh, he is an awesome belly flopper, and it's just fun to watch. And I'm manipulating him at some level to make me laugh. So I am a bad parent at some level, I know that. But really it all comes down to the fact that we all are concerned with the picture that we have of ourselves. And a lot of times the picture that we have of ourselves doesn't match up with the picture that others have of us. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been walking in a supermarket or somewhere, I don't know why I use supermarket, does anyone call it that anymore? Um, you've been walking in a store of some kind and you see somebody. 
And you, in that moment, you have a choice. Do I engage or do I walk away? And I know you have walked away because I've done it many times. Surprisingly, so has my wife. If you know my wife, she is like the most personable, easygoing, outgoing, wants friends, wants to connect with people. She loves people. She loves people. She loves being around them. She loves talking with them. And so one time when we were in her hometown, um, we were in the, the supermarket and she was walking down the aisle and all of a sudden she ducked behind the cart, which isn't very far for her, and she just starts walking really, really fast. And I'm like, Debbie, what is going on? What just happened? Uh, she's like, I, I don't want to talk about it right now. Just, let's just go. Let's just go. And I don't know what she's doing. And I, for me, this is like a paradigm shift. Uh, she has always been the people person. And at this point, I kind of am starting to realize, like, she does not want to see or talk to this person. And I have no idea why. Uh, come to find out, it was somebody from uh, her old school. And uh, what we've talked about is that Really, that person had a different picture of Debbie than who she really is now. You see, my wife would tell you that uh, when she was younger, probably junior high and below, she wasn't following Jesus. Uh, she didn't live a life that was very kind. She would term herself one of the mean girls from the movie, if you know, have seen that. Uh, but then she had an encounter with Jesus, and her whole life changed. And now she looks and speaks and acts a lot like Jesus, but that person didn't know that. And she, whatever reason, we were busy, we had to get something, we just needed to get it and get out. She didn't want to have that interaction with that person because that person had a different image of Debbie than who she truly was. And all of us are concerned at some level with the picture that we have and the way people view us. And that doesn't always line up. Uh, I remember a couple months ago, uh, whenever Jim called me to see if I wanted to come back to Sunnybrook. One of my biggest hesitations was that I was worried of the picture that people had of me. You may not know this, but I was born and raised here in Stillwater. Some of my earliest memories were of Sunnybrook, but not just in this building, but in our previous building. I went to preschool there. My parents helped out and were involved when Tom Mall was preaching and Paul was doing the youth group. Now, I was baptized right up in those waters by my dad. I went to the school here when it was uh, first getting off the ground. And all throughout my junior high and high school years, I went to Sayokomo, I went to Youthquake. Drew Henderson's first year on staff here, 124 years ago, was my sixth grade year. Okay, Ryan Bennett, my brother, who's in my wedding, his first year was my ninth grade year. Uh, I can remember a lot of the history of this church and it's deep within me. And even though I came here on Sundays, even though I showed up at Sayokomo, even though I went to Youthquake, even though I knew a lot about God, even though I knew how to thumb my way through the Bible, even though I could give really good Sunday school answers, I had a distorted picture of Jesus and it had a distorted effect on my life. And today, we're going to be talking about, you guessed it, the book of Matthew. You thought you would get out of it last week with Morgan preaching the last text, but lo and behold, today is the actual final day after our 19-year journey through the book. <clears throat> and here's the deal. It's really easy to get lost in the forest when you're so close to the trees, right? What I love about this church is that we go verse by verse through the scriptures, and we're unapologetic about that. 
We believe that this is the true word of God that has power, that can truly change our lives, that tells us about who God is and what he has done in and through the person of Jesus. That's why we do that. Uh, but today our goal is to, is to take a step back, take a 10,000 foot view of this forest, this book of Matthew, and to try and understand the picture of Jesus because the picture you have of Jesus determines your now and forever. If you would, open up to Matthew chapter one. We're gonna thumb through um, this book this morning, uh, highlight some certain things, some certain themes, because Matthew was a man who was writing to a specific group of people for a specific purpose during a specific time. Matthew was lifting up a certain picture of Jesus in order to communicate something important about him. Matthew uh, is a picture of Jesus, one of the pictures of Jesus. It is not everything that Jesus is or was or did, and that's okay because if everything that Jesus was or did could be written on words, then he wouldn't be much of a God, okay? Matthew is portraying a picture of Jesus because he had a certain group of people that he was thinking about that needed to know certain things about who Jesus is and what he did. Imagine with me, if you will, what it must have been like for Matthew. Okay, imagine uh, that for a few years, God came and he hung out with you. God put on flesh and he came and he sat next to you. He ate next to you. He went to school with you. He was there around your job. He knew your family. He knew your friends. He, he kind of knew how you worked, the things that you thought, the things that you said, the things that you did, the tendencies that you had. And you knew some of these same things about him. Like imagine that, that you got to spend a couple of years with God. How would you write the story, the biography of God? Now, what would you highlight? What would you leave out? <laughs> Can you imagine the pressure of leaving out in certain aspects of God? Man, Matthew had this enormous task. He had been commissioned by God to go and to make disciples, and he had to somehow decide what message he was going to communicate about Jesus to the people. And this book of Matthew is what we got. This book of Matthew. Now, in order to understand Matthew, you have to know your Bible. And I don't just mean the second half of your Bible. You have to understand the Old Testament. And one of the problems we have with understanding the New Testament is that we don't have a very good grasp of the Old Testament. The, the timeline is kind of jumbled in our head because certain books are in different order. Sometimes we just don't like reading some of those books because they're long and they seem boring. Really, we just, we struggle knowing the Old Testament. And it really hinders our understanding of the New Testament. But Matthew and his audience would have known the Old Testament. They would have understand understanding the story of the Old Testament, how from the very beginning, there was this anticipation of something that would come an anticipation of some redemption that God would bring for his people, through his people. We see it in Genesis chapter three in the very beginning after Adam and Eve had sinned. God said that through the offspring of Eve, would, uh, that he would crush the head of the serpent who is the devil and that, that serpent would strike his heel but there would ultimately be an act of redemption. We see it with Abraham. 
Abraham was promised that he would be the father of a great nation, that his descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky, and that through Abraham and his descendants, the whole world, all the nations would be blessed. We see it continued through David, this great king, a man after God's own heart, who God said in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that uh, his throne would reign forever. We see it throughout the whole Old Testament, throughout each story, God is working to redeem his people and yet pointing forward to something, some ultimate redemption, some ultimate figure through whom this redemption would come, this authoritative king in the line of David and the line of Abraham who would come and reestablish God's throne forever. They all knew this story. The words of the Old Testament for us was just the Bible for them the law, the Torah, and they knew it. It had been spoken over them since they were young boys and girls. They had heard it in their synagogues. They had uh, lived it. They had been taught it. They had seen it. They had ingested it. It had become part of their story. And the appearance of Jesus, Matthew wants to show us, is the climax of the story of Israel. The story, the picture of Jesus that Matthew wants to give, to give us is that Jesus is the fulfillment and the continuation of the Old Testament story. Matthew had a group of mostly Jews and some Gentiles who were worshiping together a few years after Jesus had ascended back to the right hand of God. And they needed to understand a clearer picture of Jesus because he knew that there were some all over the fence. Some believed him, some weren't sure about him, some rejected him or just didn't know about him. And he needed to portray Jesus in the right way. And the best way he knew to do that was to show that Jesus was this promised one from of old that had been anticipated in the Old Testament story. That's why I like to say that the Bible is the story of God redeeming all things through Jesus. Because just because Jesus' name doesn't appear until Matthew 1, verse 1, that doesn't mean he's not all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And that's part of what we're going to do today is see how Jesus is weaved all throughout the story and how Matthew intertwines the new and the old. So if you would look with me at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to read the entire book just right now. Ah, at Youthquake, hold on, some of you, we got to read the entire book of Ephesians. It was the first time we had ever read an entire book. So you laugh, but this is how it worked. It used to be somebody would get up and would just read an entire letter. I will save you from that today. But let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. We read, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book, the Biblos, of the genealogy, which is... In the Greek, the Genesis. The Genesis, the beginning of this book, Matthew is giving us a title and he's giving us a theme that this is a new beginning. A new beginning that harkens back to the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. And it pertains to this man named Jesus. Jesus, who is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Christ As you probably have heard here, and maybe not, the Christ uh, is this one, this one in the line of the son of David who is given all authority. The one who would reestablish the throne of God in Jerusalem, who would deliver God's people from their pagan rulers, the Romans at the time, or the Assyrians of old. 
This was Jesus the Christ. This is who this new beginning is through, that this son of David and the son of Abraham. The listeners of this story would have hearkened back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and remembered the son of David, the one through whom the throne would last forever. And then they would hear the son of Abraham, the one through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. They would have remembered that. And Matthew is saying that you need to know that this is who he is. And the whole rest of the book is going to prove these points, that Jesus is the son of God. He is the son of David, the one with all authority, the one through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed, the Christ, the anointed Messiah, the one that had been promised and anticipated long ago. In the rest of chapter one, we see this long genealogy of a bunch of different names, some that you're familiar with, but many that you're not. Some of these names are great men, heroes of the faith, kings of old. Some of them are great men in a sense that they're famous, but terrible kings, evil kings, wicked men. Some of them are women. Some of them are prostitutes. Some of them are failures. Some of them are Jews. Some of them are Gentiles. And what Matthew's trying to say is that, yes, Jesus came from the line of Abraham, from the line of David, that he is truly the one king. But listen, he has come to save not just the Jews, and, but also the Gentiles. That Jesus is a savior, that he is a king for all people, for all time. We continue and we see in the birth narrative that there are many fulfillments that Jesus, uh, is, that Jesus fulfills many of the Old Testament promises. In verse 21, we read the angel of the Lord saying to Joseph, she, your wife Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus, Yeshua or Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true living God, Yahweh saves. That's what the name Jesus means. And then listen to this change that the angel says, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not Yahweh, though it is Yahweh that this Jesus will save his people from their sins. And so this man who was promised of old, this anticipated Messiah, this king in the line of David, this offspring of Eve, this son of Abraham, is not just a man, but he's God. Behold, verse 23, the virgin shall con conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. God in the flesh. Jesus is no mere man. Though he was fully man, he is also fully God. God in the flesh, Emmanuel. And we see this theme that you're going to see throughout the rest of the um, book of Matthew. <clears throat> that Jesus is the son of David with authority. He's the true king. He is the true Messiah. He is the anointed one. That he is the son of Abraham the one through whom all the nations would be blessed, and that he is not just this, but he is Emmanuel. He is God, and he is with us. And as we've seen, this is Jesus, the picture of Matthew that is given to fulfill the Old Testament and continue its story. And we see themes like Jesus being the new Moses, that Jesus uh, was greater than Moses, this great figure from the Israelite history, we see connections all throughout the story, like uh, Moses was living during the time of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh um, realized that the Israelites were becoming so great that 
they needed to do something about it. And so Pharaoh threw a bunch of the Israelite baby boys into the river to die. But an angel of the Lord came to Moses' family and warned them, and he was saved by them putting him in a basket, and he came to Egypt and was saved by being raised in the household of Pharaoh. So too, Jesus had a similar story. He, there was a man named Herod who was ruling during Jesus' day, Herod the Great, who was a tyrant, who was known for killing anybody who had any kind of threat upon his power. And when he heard that there was possibly some type of Christ figure, a king of the Jews being born in Bethlehem, he decided that he would kill all the two-year-old boys and younger in the land. He killed them. He killed all of those boys. And we see a connection between Moses and Jesus, and we'll see many more. In chapter 2, in connection with Herod killing those children, we see the prophet Jeremiah in a verse quoted directly by Matthew in verse 18 when he says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Jesus is connecting. Matthew is connecting Jesus' story to the story of old. Not just Jeremiah the prophet, but the story of Exodus and God delivering his people. But here's what you need to do. If you truly want to understand Matthew, if you truly want to understand how Jesus is the fulfillment and the continuation of the Old Testament story, whenever you see verses directly quoted in the New Testament, like turn there and read the passage but not just the verse, not just the verse that's quoted, but read like the chapter before it, read the chapter after it, and you're going to start seeing themes. You're going to start seeing how Jesus is all throughout the Old Testament narrative. For instance, Jeremiah chapter 31, Matthew's quoting from it, but other verses in that same chapter say this, verse 15, Thus says says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined. Like an untrained calf, bring me back that I may be restored for you or the Lord my God. And all throughout that chapter, we see God is saying, though you are being persecuted, though you're being killed, though you're under rule of tyrants, be faithful. Because I will redeem you. Be faithful. Later on in that same chapter of Jeremiah chapter 31, we see in verse 31 a new promise. A new promise which is connecting, which is anticipating something to come. And in Jeremiah's day, they may not have really understood fully what it was, but Matthew's readers, Matthew's hearers, they begin to see it. Verse 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them up by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Connecting it back to the further story. My covenant that they broke. Moses went up on top of the mountain for 40 days. He fasted and heard the word from God. He got the law. He got the important things that God needed to instruct them. And he gave that law. He gave that word to the people. And before he even made it down, 
okay? Before Moses even made it down from the mountain, like they were looking on the mountain, they saw like the power of God in this cloud and fire. They had just been delivered through the Red Sea. They had just been delivered out of the hands of Pharaoh, seeing all these plagues. And in those few days between, they built an idol. They worshiped another God. They forgot who God was and what he did. They betrayed him. And it says, verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. This is the new covenant. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, Jesus is this fulfillment. He is establishing this new covenant that you hear God saying that there's going to be something written on your hearts. Now, no longer is it just words on a tablet, but it's going to be within you. We see a promise of the Holy Spirit in and through Jesus coming even then in this new covenant. We continue through the book of Matthew into chapter 2, and we see another illustration connecting Jesus and Moses, the baptism. The people of Israel going through the Red Sea, Jesus being baptized in the water, we see in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, this great sermon on the mount, the greatest sermon ever told. Jesus giving a new law, a new kingdom life, which represents Moses coming down from the mountain and giving the law. While Moses was just really a, a, a mediator giving uh, the law, Jesus was actually like the law giver. He was God in the flesh, giving them something new, a new covenant. And as the story goes on through Matthew, the tension begins to build as Jesus' kingdom begins to come to this earth. We see tension between Jews and other Jews. Some Jews from the north in Galilee who seem to respond well to Jesus, and then Jews from in and around Jerusalem and the religious leaders who seem to think that Jesus isn't who he says he is. They have a distorted picture of the Messiah, and both sides are trying to figure this guy out. And throughout the rest of the book, we see Jesus healing people. He's doing miracles. He's walking on water. He's feeding people, thousands of people, with just a few loaves of bread, harking back to when Moses fed the people of Israel in the wilderness with manna from heaven. We see parables of Jesus trying to describe this kingdom that's coming, which is worth far more than anything they could imagine. That though you might be able to gain the whole world, you could have a great family, you could have lots of money, you could have a successful career, you could have all that the world might have to offer if you're not willing to give all of that up for his sake, for his kingdom, you have nothing. And all throughout, as the tension builds, it leads Jesus from in Galilee doing his ministry, going to Jerusalem. And he encounters what might seem like his demise. After his final discourse in chapter 25, verse 26 describes the plot to kill Jesus. Chapter 26 shows how Judas is going to betray him and how Jesus is gonna redefine one of the most definitive moments in Israel's history. In just a moment, we're gonna partake in communion as a family. We do it a little different on fifth Sundays. But we do this because in verses like Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 25, we have Jesus instituting a new kind of Passover. And you guys heard the sermon not long ago when the Passover happened back in Exodus. Um, 
God's people were finally ready to come out of Egypt. God was going to do this one final plague where the angel of death is going to sweep over the land. Ninja move. Did you see that? Um, The angel of death is going to sweep over the land and kill all the firstborn children of anyone who doesn't have the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. And that was like a definitive moment in Israel's history. Everyone, everyone knows about that story. And Jesus stands up in chapter 26 and he says, that, that's pointing to me. That blood, uh, that blood which saved you, like my blood is going to be spilled for all people and save all who would put their faith in me. Uh, The firstborn were killed. Your firstborn were saved because of this blood. I'm the firstborn from God and I'm giving up my own life so that you can have life. And Jesus redefines it and he takes a thing like bread and says, this is my body which was broken for you. And he takes the juice and he's, well, not juice, he was wine back then, we got weak stuff today. Um, He takes the juice and he says, like, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, which was, I'm not going to put that back in there, actually. I don't want you guys to get sick on this side. Um, This is the blood of my covenant, this new covenant which was promised in Jeremiah chapter 31. This blood that was spilled, making all of us white as snow, all who would put their faith in him. Jesus goes on. Before the council, he says this in 26, verse 63. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus, Jesus says to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And it was silent. The Pharisees and Sadducees, these religious leaders, probably looked at each other because they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. And you may not, because you may not know the Old Testament story, but they did. And when he said that, they knew in that moment that he was claiming to be God in the flesh, Emmanuel. And they didn't believe him. And they said he was a blasphemer because he was quoting from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, which paints a picture of this ancient of days who is sitting on the throne. And he has all power and he has all authority. And then something interesting happens. Daniel has another dream. And he dreams of one like the Son of Man. And behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, this is God, the Father, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdoms, ones that shall not be destroyed. And we hear the anticipation of this one and the son of David, this line of Abraham, this promised king and Messiah who was God in the flesh. And they just didn't see it. And Jesus was that man. And Matthew's trying to show this his audience that Jesus is this one, this son of man, like the ancient of days who had come, who's been given all power and authority and an everlasting kingdom. But what they didn't understand and what probably Peter didn't fully understand, the disciples, his family, really probably very few understood in the moment what Jesus was going to do to reestablish God's kingdom. 
They wanted a king. They wanted a man they could follow with their swords to fight and overthrow the Roman government. And they were tired of being people's slaves, being tormented because of really their own sin. They wanted somebody that would save them now, but not in the way God had promised. Jesus was the fulfillment and the continuation of the Old Testament story. He just didn't look like what they thought he would. Pilate asked the same question that the Sadducees and Pharisees ask in verse 11 of chapter 27 when he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says again, you have said so. He's only affirming what people already are whispering about him. And then we get to the crucifixion. Verse 37 says this, and over his head they put the charge against him which read, this is Jesus the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one in the right and one on the left, and those who passed were derided, um, were, derid, words, were derided by him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Then let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Matthew's hearers, they would have been drawn back to the story. Psalm chapter 22 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads at me. He who trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. And Matthew is saying that this Jesus is the one everyone's been waiting for and you just can't see it. They weren't expecting the kind of Messiah that he was because they didn't read and understand verses like Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet, no, he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to a slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off and out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. 
And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, this Jesus, which hadn't sinned, though he wasn't this earthly ruler like they expected, he was the savior that they needed and the Messiah that was promised. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. Isaiah prophesied about it. And the people had read it, and they probably even knew that chapter. They just didn't know know what it meant. They didn't know that their king, who was supposed to reestablish power for God forever, had to do it by dying, by being humiliated, by being murdered and betrayed on a cross. And so Jesus died. God was killed And they thought the story was over. The disciples were scared. Many of them scattered, as was also promised, actually. Uh, The Jewish leaders thought they had won. And you and I, we read this story and we can be fooled into thinking that Jesus failed. That somehow God had failed in his plan. He failed back in Genesis. He tried to create a perfect world, but it didn't work. He failed back with Israel because, you know, he had a chosen people, but they kept messing up. And it makes sense then that Jesus would come, God in the flesh, and God, man, he just can't quite get it right. That's how I've read it before. Somehow, God has failed in his plan to redeem all things. Here's the problem, is that Jesus went to that cross willingly. He had all the power. He told Pilate to his face, like, you have no power over me except for what I'm giving you right now. Yeah, he could have called the angels down to save him off that cross. He could have walked out of there unscathed and just wiped the rest of them out with nothing but a whisper. But that's not what he had come to do. He had come to be this suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the one through whom all our iniquities would be put upon. But then there's a twist in the story. The good news that Matthew's gospel isn't just a continuation of a failed story of God's redemptive plan, but that there was something else in the works. That Jesus truly was who he said he was. And he resurrected from the grave. And Matthew, being the great literary man that he was, connected the end of the story with the beginning of the story. And both of these stories with the greater story of God's redemptive plan. You can read right there. Morgan preached on it last week. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Just like Moses commissioned Joshua to go and lead the people after he died to go and to be courageous, to fear nothing because God would be with them. So Jesus is commissioning his disciples to do the same, but to establish an eternal kingdom. Remember in the beginning when we talked about the son of David, this one who had authority, the son of Abraham who all the nations would be blessed through, and this Emmanuel, God with us. We see that same theme in Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. 
He is the son of David. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. He is the son of Abraham, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the very end of the age, because I am Emmanuel, God with us. And we have the picture that Matthew gives us of Jesus. And like them back in that day, walking with Jesus, like the hearers of Matthew's gospel a few years later, and us today, we all have an opportunity to respond to him. There's only three responses, and only two of them are probably legitimate. Number one, we can have a positive response to Jesus. We can say that he is the son of David. He is the promised king. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is Emmanuel. He is, we said he was, this great son of man, this son of Abraham. We can say all that. We can respond positively to be his disciple. And Matthew, for some reason, ends his, ends his story of Jesus by reminding those who responded positively of what they're supposed to do. So it would make sense here today that all of you who would right now would have raised their hand, who are going to come here and take this communion because you believe Jesus is who he said he is, all of you make disciples. Like Your job is to represent Jesus, to be a picture of Jesus in the community of Stillwater, to be a picture of Jesus in your home to be a picture of Jesus with your extended family, like you are Jesus now walking in the earth. So go and make disciples. As you go throughout your life, make disciples. There are people around you in your everyday life who you need to have conversations with, who you need to show the love of Christ to, who you need to baptize. We would love for you to be in those waters, baptizing your family members, baptizing your friends, baptizing your neighbors, your coworkers. Like me and Paul and Morgan and Drew and Scott and Drew and any other Drews that are in here, uh, we are here to train and equip you. Uh, yeah, that's what we do. We come to preach. We come to set you up for success so that you can do the work of ministry. That's what Ephesians 4 says. You do the work of ministry. You don't just come here and consume. You go and you do. You go and you make disciples. Some of you who respond positively, I would say too, you need to check yourself because there are some areas, secret pockets in your life where you're still walking in darkness. Where you're still holding on to something from your past that's keeping you from having a full picture of Jesus in your life. And you need to submit to Jesus as your Lord in that area and every other. Some of you are going to respond neutrally to this message. And as Ryan Vincent said a few weeks ago, that's actually not an option. That's a fake option. Uh, it's an option a lot of us try to walk on, but really you're either for Jesus and you, or you're against Jesus. So you may say you're neutral, um, but you're really not with him. And what I mean by neutral is that you're just not going all in for Jesus. For whatever reason, like you're holding something back. You either have a distorted picture of who he is, uh, you're scared of what people are going to think about you, or maybe you just don't want to sacrifice too much. You read verses about how like you can either love your family or you can love Jesus and you don't understand what that means and you're not willing to sacrifice a relationship with your family over Jesus, even though it may come to that. 
Some of you know that like you're gonna have to break off a relationship with a guy or a girl because Jesus has called you to a different standard and you don't wanna do that. You might come here and sit here, know a lot about God, be able to thumb, thumb through your scriptures and say you are a Christian, but you have not submitted to God as your king in every area of your life. The last of you are those who would reject Jesus. And I don't really have much to say to you because I don't know how I could convince you to change your mind if Jesus himself couldn't convince some of the people in his own day to change their mind about him. But I will pray for you. Number one, I'll pray that you can see God working somehow in your life and that you would have no other answer for it but to worship God. And if that doesn't work, I pray that God will wreck your life. That God would break you down so far that you have nothing. That like Job, even though he was a righteous man, that you would be laid bare before God and you have no other option but to either end your life or to continue it in a new way with God. Don't be like Pharaoh and harden your heart. Don't be like Herod. Don't be like the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. Just don't do it. Right now, we're getting ready to partake in communion as a family. And what I want you to do when you come up to either the front here, the sides, or the back, is to go up with your community. Go up with your friends, your family. Take the bread, which represents Jesus' broken body. Take the juice and get in a little circle and pray with each other. Get right before God. Confess whatever you need to confess before him. If you want to respond in another way, you've never really like decided to go all in for Jesus, we'll have some staff and elders up here who would love to have that conversation with you. Whatever you do, listen to what God is saying to you through the book of Matthew and respond properly, which is only in worship. So let us worship together in communion. Let us worship together in song. Let us worship together by trusting God with our finances and saying that we want to see his kingdom go far into the world. Let us trust him in every area of our life. Let's pray. God, you are a good God, and we do not deserve you. From the very beginning of time, you've been working your plan to redeem us God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that you saved a foolish, foolish boy like me who had a distorted picture of you and who didn't represent you well. Thank you for showing me grace. Thank you for pursuing me. Thank you for my many brothers and sisters who are here worshiping you too. God, for all those who are not part of our family yet, I pray that you would break their hearts right now and that they would submit to you as Lord and Savior of their life they would come and worship you as their king. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.